You can turn with me your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 4. As we continue our studies in the book of Colossians, look at verses 2 through 6 this morning. Uh, It's the final section in the body of Colossians. Uh, I'll just read those verses for us this morning. Colossians chapter 4, begin reading at verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord our God, we are thankful for the mercy that you've shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the mystery of the gospel, Christ in us, uh, the hope of glory, Christ in Gentiles, the hope of glory, that there is mercy and forgiveness for your people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And thank you that the mystery uh, of your salvation has been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for that gospel that has been shown. Thank you for that gospel that has been revealed. And thank you, O God, that you're the one by the power of your spirit who reveals it to sinners. Thank you that you're the one who opens doors. Thank you that you're the one who opens hearts. And we pray that you would do so today. We pray that sinners would be saved. We also pray that your people would be a people of prayer. We confess so often our prayers are cold and dead. So often our hearts are wandering and our minds are thinking of other things. We ask, oh God, that you would give us a spirit of prayer. Help us to be focused. Help us to pay attention. Help us to uh, be uh, thoughtful of the things that we pray to you. And thank you that just as we have received faith and love and hope, we pray that others would receive that as well, that we would be thankful for the faith, love, and hope that we have that are gifts from you. And we pray that others would receive these gifts as well. And we also pray that by your spirit, according to the power of Christ, according to our union with Christ, we pray that we would walk in wisdom, that we would redeem the time. We pray that our speech would be seasoned with salt, that we would speak graciously, that we would speak kindly, but that you'd also speak about the grace of Christ uh, that has been shown to us. So give us strength, give us wisdom, help us to know how we ought to live in this world. Help us to fear evil, uh, sorry, to fear the Lord and to shun evil. And may we walk in wisdom in this way. So be pleased to strengthen your saints, be pleased to uh, save sinners and all things we pray that you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we all have friends or family that we would like to be saved. We all have perhaps desires to evangelize to people. And we all believe that sinners need to be saved uh, through the preaching of the word, that sinners need to come and hear the gospel of free and sovereign grace. There needs to be evangelism. But sometimes we, ha- we ask the question or puzzle about how we do that. What is the method of evangelism? What ought we to do? And we certainly live in a time where there are many different types of methods for sharing the gospel. And while there are many methods, and while we desire that sinners be saved and know Christ, the Bible really only addresses two guiding principles when it comes to evangelism. And these two principles, the titles of them I got from Dr. Renahan in one of his classes, and these two principles are the two ways of evangelism are one, office-centered evangelism that centers around the preached word, that centers around a man called by God, and then secondly, the message-centered evangelism, being ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. I do believe the former, office-centered, is seen in verses 2 through 4, and the latter, message-centered, is seen in verses 5 and 6. Because of this, we need to understand that there is Christian liberty about the method one uses. And it may be that your method doesn't always align with another's method. And we need to be aware of that. And so I think Paul's final exhortation is instructive for what this can look like here for us. And remember, Paul is instructing them as well, instructing the Colossian church, how they ought to live in light of the gospel, how uh, what they can do when it comes to the promotion of the gospel of free and sovereign 
grace. So he comes to the close of the body of the letter. He gives this final exhortation. He's focused primarily on the heavenly life that we live based on Christ. Uh, in general, what that looks like, specifically when it comes to the household. And then here's some final exhortations on what we all can do when it comes to the gospel of free and sovereign grace. Now, I do believe the problem is clear from these verses, and the problem is uh, manifold. That is that we can have frigid prayer, we can have a foolish walk, and we can be harsh with our words. We can have frigid prayer in general, and usually a frigid or cold or dead prayer for ministers and the proclamation of the gospel. You see, prayer is so very difficult, and the implication of this command is that we do struggle with earnestness. We do struggle with fervency. We do struggle striving when it comes to prayer. And we ought to strive, especially when it comes to the advancement of the gospel, by praying for men who preach that gospel. So we can have frigid prayers. We can also have a foolish walk, and we can also have harsh words towards outsiders again some people want a method of evangelism but they don't want to walk in wisdom and so we need to see what paul says here how can we promote the gospel how can we share the gospel how can we promote the gospel of free and sovereign grace in our lives well in colossians 4 verses 2 through 6 Paul does close the body of the letter with exhortations about gospel proclamation and our personal witness. So gospel proclamation and personal witness, those are the main exhortations. And we'll look at this under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see our prayer for gospel proclamation, verses 2 through 4. And secondly, we'll see our witness as gospel promotion in verses 5 and 6. So our prayer for gospel proclamation and then our witness is gospel promotion. So let's first look at our prayer for gospel proclamation in verses 2 through 4. And again, the context is one's heavenly life. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. He talks about who we are in Christ. We've died and buried and been raised and are alive with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our status in him. Then how ought we to live with that status? Well, we put to death the old man. And so in Christ, we put to death those members, those earthly members. Verse five, therefore put to death your members, which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, so on and so forth. But we then put on, because we have put on, the new man in the Lord Jesus Christ, verse, verses 9 and 10. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge. We've been saved. We've been changed. We've been given new hearts. We are the new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord, not just of old creation, but of the new creation as well. And he goes on to give some specific places where we can exercise these uh, Christian virtues and graces. It's in the home, husbands and wives, children and parents, and in our jobs as well, which we saw with masters and bondservants. And so it really is about the everyday life, how we can live our heavenly life in the everyday here and now. And while I'm not against passing out tracts or going on missions trips per se, not everyone has the time or money to do that very thing. So what we can we do? Well, Paul says in verse two, we can pray. May not be the method with all the shine, may not be the method with all the pizzazz, but I surmise that sometimes it perhaps is more difficult because it's in our closets. No one sees us. Let's be honest. We like to be seen by others doing various things. And so prayer is the main thing that we can do to promote the word of God, to promote the gospel. And notice we see, he says in verse two, continue earnestly in prayer. And he started the body of Colossians with prayer. Chapter one, three, he gives thanks to God, praying for the faith and love and hope that the Colossians have. Verse 9, he prays that they be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom, spiritual understanding. They know how to walk worthy, that they might be able to bear fruit by the power of God in the knowledge of God. So he starts with prayer and he ends the body with prayer as well. And so what they have received, they then ought to pray for others as well. 
So he says, continue earnestly, therefore, in prayer. And notice in verse 2, we see the manner in which we ought to pray. Three things, earnestness, watchfulness, and with thanksgiving. And in verse 2, we see that, continue earnestly in prayer. means the people of God must busy themselves with prayer. Prayer must be done without ceasing. Now, that doesn't mean we neglect everything. That doesn't mean we stop everything. It doesn't mean we ask our boss for three hours off of work so we can pray. It means that we pray regularly. It means we pray consistently. It needs to be a regular part of the Christian walk. And one thing I really appreciate about Paul, and I appreciate about my God, and I appreciate about the Puritans, is that the reason he gives us these commands is the implication is that we struggle with these things. Continue earnestly. Busy yourself with prayer. Strive in prayer. How often is it that we are cold and dead in our prayers? How often is it that our minds wander and we think of other things? Well, Paul says strive. It requires hard work. It requires aid from God. It requires help to pray. And so the first thing we ought to pray when we're cold and dead is, Lord, give me that spirit of prayer. Lord, my mind is wandering. Lord, I'm thinking of other things. Please help me to pray and help me to pray your thoughts after you. Pray your thoughts back to you. That's why it's not wrong sometimes if you're struggling to pray, go to the Lord's Prayer. If you're struggling to pray, go to the Psalms. If you're struggling to pray, go to the Puritans. I appreciate how the Puritans in Valley of Vision, Lord, I feel cold, I feel dead, here's my sin before you. These men we put on a pedestal were still men, and they still struggled uh, with prayer. And so Paul says we must continue earnestly. We must strive with our praying. And the same word for continue earnestly is used in Acts 1.14. After the Lord has ascended, before the Spirit has been poured out, the apostles were praying. They were praying earnestly. They were praying without ceasing. They were praying without fainting uh, toward their God. So we must be earnest and fervent in our prayer. So then notice the second way in which we pray. We must be watchful in our prayers, being vigilant in it. And the idea comes from the idea of a night watchman, one who's alert, one who's aware, perhaps in this instance, of the needs of of others, but also being on guard against sin as well. And it shouldn't be lost on us. The language of watch and pray is also used in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark 14, when Jesus goes to pray, when Jesus is about to die on that cross, his disciples are sleeping. And what does Jesus say? Watch and pray and he says something that is resonates hopefully with all of us that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak we need the strength of god most high to stay awake we need the strength of god most high not to be drowsy we need to watch and pray it must be cultivated by by the word cultivated by prayer and cultivated uh, by the power of the spirit so we must be watchful earnest and watchful We must not be drowsy in our prayers. It's so often to be drowsy. It's so easy to be drowsy, though, isn't it? It's so easy to be sleepy and it's late at night and we fall asleep. We need to be awake and alert uh, when we pray. Considering others, considering needs, praying for all. There is perhaps a parallel in Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance. We must persevere because prayer is hard. Your mind wanders. Lord, help me to be, you know, uh, to, to be focused uh, at this time. And he says, uh, uh, and supplications for all the saints. So I do think in a, Colossians 4, verse 2, he's talking about prayer in general, what our prayers ought to be like in general. We ought to pray for all. We ought to pray for our brothers and sisters. He's going to be specific in verse three, but we pray with earnestness. We pray earnestly. We pray with vigilance and watchfulness, but also with thanksgiving. Whatever way God answers our prayer, whatever way God, uh, whether he rejects our request, whether he answers our request or delays our request, we must be a thankful people. And throughout this letter, God has, uh, Paul has talked about how the people must be thankful. You do all with thanksgiving, that the uh, peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. We're not supposed to grumble and whine and complain. 
Again, what's the implication? We grumble and we whine and we complain. So we need to thank God, be thankful, God, you've given me faith, that is a gift from you. You've given me love, that is a gift from you. You've given me hope, that is a gift from you. God, may that be for others as well. We all must do so with thanksgiving. So whatever we do, whatever prayers must include, thanksgiving to God for what he has done. So earnestness in prayer, watchfulness, and with thanksgiving. So that's prayer in general. But then notice the specific purpose that Paul addresses in verses 3 and 4. Notice it's for proclamation. If there's one thing that should be in our prayers, it's for the proclamation of the gospel. And specifically here, he's talking about the office-centered evangelism. Office-centered. Men called of God, men set apart by God to be officers in Christ's church. Now, notice he says, meanwhile, pray also for us. He's referring to men who are like him, men who are apostles, perhaps men who are evangelists. There were evangelists in the early church called and set apart by the church. And I think it can apply to ministers of the gospel, as hopefully the gospel is preached, the gospel is proclaimed. And so he says, pray for us, those like him. And he's already spent some time talking about this, how he's been entrusted, how he says, we, uh, him we proclaim in verse 28 of chapter 1. Then also verse 23, if indeed you continue steadfast in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Then in verse 25, he talks about how he became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden, but is now revealed. Paul understood he wasn't just an apostle. We understood his place in redemptive history. He understood that he was the apostle to the Gentiles as the one who would go forth to the ends of the earth. But he does pray that the gospel uh, would go forth, not just pray in general, pray for others, certainly, but pray for us, pray for apostles, pray for evangelists, pray for ministers. And notice he says that God would open to us a door for the word. You see, Paul understands where the heavenly life comes from. He understands against the false teachers where one's life is grounded in. And it's not in some esoteric nonsense. We haven't talked about the false teachers in a while uh, because we've hit family, we've hit practical living, we've had hit put on and put off. But the false teachers, uh, uh, their way is not grounded in Christ. Their way is one that is grounded in, in, in nonsense. There's, it's vain. It is, uh, it is uh, traditions of men, the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. How then do we live? According to Christ, as we received him, so we walk in him. And Paul understands that the saving power of God comes through the means of the proclamation of the word, not through not touching and not tasting and not handling, not from various basic principles, not from traditions of men, but from Christ. And so what is the prayer? That God, the gospel would be proclaimed, that the gospel would spread towards the ends of the earth. And he says that God would open to us a door for the word. I think this refers both to the opportunity to speak to others, but also prayer for hearts to be open. The word does come up also in Acts chapter 14 at the end of Paul's mission, first missionary journey after they've gone through uh, Galatia. He says, uh, after he's giving a report to Antioch, he says in verse 27, or it says in verse 27 of Acts 14, that when they had come together and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, that he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples, opened the door to preach, but more importantly, God was the one who opened the hearts. Salvation is of the Lord, isn't it? God has commanded his church to preach the gospel. And that is the means by which he saves his people from their sins. Salvation is not of man, but it belongs to the Lord. It is God who opens hearts. 
And it's also God who gifts the church with men to preach the word. God is the one who calls men into gospel ministry. The man does not call himself, but God calls them. And we see qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, especially uh, as it pertains to pastors. Now, apostles and evangelists were itinerant. That means they travel from place to place. But pastors are ones who are stationary. They stay in the same spot. And so we do pray that sinners would come in. We do pray for opportunity for sinners to come and hear the word of God. We do desire that, and we do want that very thing. Understanding is God who saves their hearts, or God who saves their souls and opens their hearts. Davenant says, no one relying upon the strength of his natural abilities uh, ought to undertake this office of an evangelist, but to depend upon divine grace and divine benediction. Doesn't matter if I have lofty words, as Paul says, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he says, pray for us, pray for ministers, pray for them that the word, the God would open to us a door for the word. And notice we see the mystery proclaimed to speak the mystery of Christ. We've seen this word mystery already in Colossians. Usually it has to do with Christ and the salvation that comes in him, what was promised in the old, what was concealed in the old is now revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the mystery revealed. The gospel is the mystery revealed, that it's not just salvation for Jews, but also for Greeks as well. So we've seen the word in 127, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And him we preach. This Christ we preach, this Christ we proclaim, because that is how God makes known his self-saving work. And then 2.3 says, in whom in Christ Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It was Christ who was promised And it is Christ who reveals, and it is Christ who is revealed, and it is the gospel that is revealed to the Gentiles, both in its proclamation, you're a wretch, you need Christ, but also in the work of uh, the Spirit in the hearts of those who hear. It is the gospel that saves, not the doctrines of men. It is the doctrine by which we walk in as God's people rooted in Christ and not the traditions of men. And so what he's saying here is that all the apostles, they would have this opportunity to speak that mystery of Christ. Here's the gospel. Here's what Christ has done. He lived, died, and rose again to save sinners. Believe on him, and you shall be saved. And then in uh, verse 4, we see at the end of it there, uh, uh, the gospel mystery proclaimed by Christ uh, through Paul. And so verse three, he talks about the mystery revealed, uh, um, about how, um, sorry, uh, verse three talks about how the mystery is revealed, uh, in general, that the apostles would be able to reveal it in general with external preaching and God would open doors. That is the means by which God uses. So apostles in general, but then he, Paul also asked for prayer for himself and the tense changes for us for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. That is, Paul understands and hopes that as he proclaims the gospel, he would have clarity as well. Paul still needs that. Paul still needs prayer. Paul needs strength. His chains are not a hindrance to the gospel, uh, but it's a manifestation that he has preached that gospel. And he prays that it still would be for the saving knowledge of Christ in others, for which I am also in chains, that I make it manifest as I ought to speak, that come what may, he may speak Christ. Come what may, he be clear in that gospel presentation. Come what may, he may proclaim Christ and him crucified. What he speaks, what the the, the apostles speak, what ministers speak when it comes to the salvation of souls. And so the application here, I do believe is clear. We need to pray for office-centered evangelism. We certainly need to pray in general that we would have fervency in prayer, a persistence in prayer, that we not grow faint in prayer. Certainly the persistent widow comes to mind in Luke 18. So we ought to ask, seek, and knock. 
Prayer really is the most blessed discipline, but it's the one that I frequently hear from people that they wish to grow in. Why is that? Because it's so hard. Because our minds wander. Because we are cold and dead. And thankfully, the measure of our prayers do not save us. Thank you for the, that the measure of our prayers are not, is not the power of our prayer. The power of our prayer is the God that we call upon, not the measure of our prayers. But God does call us to ask, seek, and knock. God calls us to be persistent. God calls us to pray and pray and pray and pray some more. And so when we feel cold or, cold or dead, again, ask for the spirit of prayer. And then ask for it again and again and again and again and again. Ask God according to his will again and again and again and again. Be persistent in your prayer because he is a good God and he gives us good things. And he sometimes and most of the time gives us things we haven't even asked for. He gives us things we haven't even been thankful for. That is how good our God is. But if you suffer, pray. If you are joyful, certainly sing songs, but also pray and thank, give thanks to God for all that he has done. But pray, pray to your God. Davenant says this perseverance of prayer then does not require an uninterrupted type of prayer, but a frequently repeated act of prayer. That is to say, we should not, we should not lay aside the desire of prayer, either by the weariness of expectations or the despair of obtaining or for any other cause whatsoever. But we should invoke God frequently and frequently plead with him, even when he seems to have shut his ears to our prayers. Pray, pray, pray before your God. Reason before your God. We're going to see that tonight in Psalm 7. We saw how they, David's been thoughtful in his prayers in Psalm 6, how he's laid the, he's the, his plight out before his God. We ought to do that in our prayers as we pray to our God, casting all our burdens upon him. May our prayers be fervent and thank the Lord that there is forgiveness for most of the times when they are not. We also ought to have fervent prayer for the ministry. The primary place of evangelism is on the Lord's day. The primary place of evangelism is on the Lord's day. Yes, the church is the place where uh, saints gather and the church is primarily for believers. We also preach the gospel of Christ. And we hope that sinners come in and hear the word. We hope that as sinners come in, that they recognize that we are entering into the household of God. There's something very special. There's something very sacred about entering to the house of God. It's where heaven and earth intersect. And we pray that sinners would be saved through that proclamation. That's why it's good to invite friends to church. It's good to invite them into this place. They might hear that gospel and be saved. And thankfully, as the word goes forth, hopefully faithfully, uh, that, and even if it doesn't, even if there's weakness and feebleness, there's, you know, there, there are jars of clay for a reason that spread forth the gospel, that God, Christ would speak. Christ does speak. As Jesus is sending forth the 70 in Luke 10, he says, those who hear you, hear me. Those who reject you, reject me. In Romans 10, it says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the way that that, that whole sort of verse unfolds in verse 14, how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? They haven't heard Christ. How shall they hear him without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? We need the sending of preachers. We need the calling of men as the office of elder to faithfully preach God's word, to strengthen the saints, but also that God would save sinners through that proclamation as well. So sometimes just inviting a friend or a family member to the church is evangelism. Just praying is evangelism. And we ought to recognize the place and the importance of office-centered evangelism. So that's our, our prayer for gospel proclamation. Let's then look secondly at our witness as gospel promotion, verses five and six. I got that word promotion from a book recommended by Dr. Renahan called The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, 
Uh, it's by a, an Anglican guy, but he just talks about what missions can look like. And one thing I need to highlight is that our Christian walk is not the gospel. The gospel is Christ living, dying, and rising again. That's the gospel. It's something that's taught. It's something that is proclaimed. But Paul does say in Philippians 1 that we live in a manner consistent with that gospel. That's what I mean, and that's what I believe he means by gospel promotion. And I think we see that in verses 5 and 6. And notice, we are to walk in wisdom toward unbelievers in verse 5. It is a charge. These are commands. Continue earnestly. It's a command. Walk in wisdom. It is a command that Paul has given to us. And it says, walk in wisdom to those who are outside redeeming the time. What's the implication? That we live in a foolish world. That we live in a world where there is much sin. Wisdom is taking the things that we learn of God's law and applying them in specific situations. Wisdom is fearing the Lord and shunning evil, as it says throughout many, uh, throughout the Proverbs and Job as well. Fear the Lord, keep his commandments. Fear the Lord and shun evil. That is what wisdom is. And that wisdom comes from Christ. That wisdom comes from being found in him. That has been the emphasis on wisdom in this book. In contrast with the wisdom or appearance of wisdom of the false teachers. They say, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. That's not wisdom. Wisdom comes from Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and understanding. That is, what is our heavenly life? How ought we to live as redeemed saints? What does our sanctification look like? Well, here we walk in wisdom. There's sin out there. If you didn't know that. There's the world out there. If you didn't know that, there's the devil out there. And we must be watchful against those things. We'll always have that remaining corruption. That's the, that's the one of the three that is always there. Always that remaining corruption until Christ comes back. But there's also the influence of the world, and there is the threat of the devil as well. And so we must walk circumspectly. We must walk notice to those who are outside we must be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves as jesus says in matthew chapter 10 but notice he says outside the church notice what the implication of that is we're not to separate ourselves from the world spatially yes we've been saved and redeemed and we differ spiritually but we're not separated spatially the implication is we live in the world and we walk among it we live in the world, but we are not of the world. That it's not wrong to have non-Christian friends. It's not wrong to have a secular job. It's not wrong to have those things. And the implication is we're going to be interacting with unbelievers around us. And so we must walk circumspectly. We must walk with wisdom. Certainly the church at Colossae had to be on guard. Certainly all the churches in the Greco-Roman Empire had to be on guard. The Greco-Roman Empire is very much like our day today. We have to be watchful. We have to redeem the time. How do we interact with the world? How do we interact with those around us? I mean, he already talked about last time in chapter 3, verses 22 through 4-1, how we care for how we serve our earthly masters, how we serve our earthly bosses, even if they're unbelievers. How do we promote the gospel in our jobs? Well, we work hard as if unto the Lord. We don't work for eye service. We work hard and respect them, even if they are harsh bosses as well. We must walk uh, uh, in wisdom toward those who are outside of the church. And notice the manner. How? By redeeming the time. And at the end of verse 5. This is very similar to what is said in Ephesians 5.15, where he says, See then you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. And perhaps what he is saying here, and there is an allusion perhaps back to Daniel 2.8. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He was kind of concerned about that dream. He called his wise men in and he said, you buy this time because if you don't, you're going to die. <laughs> you need to make use of this opportunity because if you get my dream wrong, I'm going to kill you. They get the dream wrong, and, well, they, uh, they are killed by Nebuchadnezzar. But the point is, you seize the day. There is, you need to buy the time. You may make use of the time that you have. But what does that mean for the Christian? What it means is, 
when there is a time that is unfavorable, in a world where there is tons of sin all around us, we must make ever, every opportunity to do what is right in the sight of God. There are going to be many times we don't do what is right in the sight of God towards those outside of us, but we must, as Devenant says, whether, whether when in inconvenient times and there are adverse effects, our salvation, we must be wise and make use of the salvation that we have. The point is there's temptations all around. We must walk in wisdom. The point is there's problems all around. We must redeem the time. We must, you know, read God's word. We must be gracious to others. We must cultivate the gifts and graces that God has given to us, whether it's a favorable or an unfavorable time. And let's be honest, humanly speaking, is there ever a favorable time? Is there ever a time where it's wonderful in the world all the time and everything's hunky-dory and nobody sins? We live in a present evil age. And there's a reason it's called a present evil age. So how ought we to live in a present evil age? One, you don't have to go live like a Hutterite. You don't have to go into the boonies and hide away. But as you live in this world, walk circumspectly. Give, ask God to give you the grace needed to interact and, with the world around you without sinning. That's, the, that's what we are called to do as we live in the world, but not of the world. We have regular jobs in the world. We don't sin with the world. That's what I think he's getting at here. Walk in wisdom towards those who are out time, redeeming the time, because the days are evil, as he says in Ephesians chapter 2. Our Christian walk is in, ought to be in such a way that we shine as a light in a crooked and perverse generation. And that comes with our Christian walk, our Christian life, that comes with, whether, uh, uh, with, with what has been said all before in chapter 3, putting off, putting to death, putting on, husbands, wives, children, fathers, bondservants, and masters. This is how we walk circumspectly and redeem the time in which we live. Don't give a place for sin, but make every opportunity to do what is right according to what God has said, whatever threats may come your way. And this is where, you know, sometimes people want to do all these other things when it comes to evangelism. People want to do evangelism. People want to go on missions. When they say evangelism, they want to go out and pass out tracts, which again, I'm not necessarily against. But people want to do the method, but they don't want to mortify sin. People want to lead a life group, but they can't teach their kids catechism. And they're not loving their wives. They're not caring for their family like they should. People want to evangelize at work rather than do their job. Brother, that is not right. If you're at a job, you have a boss paying you whatever wage that is. You don't spend three hours of your eight-hour day evangelizing. You do what God has called you to do in that job. But then, yes, we want people to save. I probably sound cold and, and cold and mean, like I don't care for people. I do. I want people to be saved. But there's something more important than evangelism. You know what that is? Honoring God. Obeying God is more important than evangelism. And everybody wants all the evangelism and thinks that's this great and wonderful thing, which it can be. But they don't want to do their job with cheerfulness. They want to do their job in a hearty way. They don't want to do their job fearing God and in sincerity of heart. Work on the sincerity of heart part. Then we'll talk about whether we can go pass out tracts or not. This is how we promote the gospel, walking in wisdom towards those who are outside redeeming the time. And then also notice in verse six, notice the progression. Prayer, prayer in general, prayer for office-centered evangelism, Walking, how we live, and then our words as well. Verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Notice it shows, uh, teaches us the manner, I think, and also what we ought to say with that language of gracious. Let your speech always be with grace. What you say always be with grace. And Again, I appreciate God's word because the implication is we can sometimes struggle with 3-9, 3-9, or 3-8, sorry. But now you yourselves are to put off these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. We can struggle with wanting to tear people down. We can struggle with being vindictive. We can struggle with anger. And where does that manifest, dear brethren? In our words. 
in what we say. And so as we deal with a frustrating world out there, we need God's grace to know how to speak in that world. We need God's grace to know how to walk in that world. And notice it talks about how we speak, but also what we speak. Henry says, whether you're talking about Christ and talking about the gospel, that is the grace we speak about. Whether you're talking about common things, we must speak with grace. We must speak with kindness. A soft answer turns away wrath. That's what the Proverbs say. We're in Ephesians 4.29, talking certainly amongst believers, He says in 429, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, what is good and for necessary edification. We ought to speak with tender mercies. We ought to speak with kindness. We ought to speak with grace. Certainly there's times to be firm, uh, when times to be, you know, uh, depending on who we're talking to, but we must be gracious. Let your speech always be with grace. And notice he uses a salt metaphor, seasoned with grace salt that is the hope is that our speech uh, uh or the, the salt ideas is something that it keeps things from decaying keeps things from going bad as davenant says it removes noxious gases from the meat to make sure it is preserved and the hope is that as we speak we don't ca- uh, become a stumbling block as we speak We speak with kindness, that there might be uh, a season ourselves with the word of God in Mark 9, 50, and our spiritual walk might be seasoned with salt, and that we might also speak with being seasoned with salt as well. That is, we might speak with kindness, speak with grace, that we might speak becoming as one who has been saved. And salt is used often in the Bible to speak about our spiritual walk, that it might be preserved, it might be protected, that our speech might protect uh, protect what we say, that our uh, speech and how we say it might protect the things that we say, and our speech might coincide with the things that we do in our walk as well. So be gracious, season with salt. So often we can be condescending, so often we can be rude, so often we can be mean. And yes, brethren, I believe that what we're saying should be heard over against how we say it. Let's be honest. People get offended by how we say certain things, right? And we have to understand our place as well when we say those things. But all of us must work on letting our speech always be with grace. That is what we say and how we say it as well. Seasoned with salt. And notice the purpose. That you may know how you ought to answer each one. We need wisdom and gracious uh, with uh, how we walk, but also with the words that we say. And as we interact with people, we we ought to know how we uh, respond to them. In Proverbs 26, there are two Proverbs that can be confusing. Answer a man according to the fool of his folly. Do not answer a man according to the fool of his folly. What that teaches us is who we're talking to might dictate how we speak. Who we're talking to might dictate what we say and how much we say. If we're talking to children, if we're talking to uh, an adult, if we're talking to uh, whoever, someone who might be in more in a uh, a higher status or lower status, whoever we're talking to, we uh, we ought to know how we ought to answer. So yes, we ought to know what we ought to say, but also know how we answer in that moment as well. So we ought to know how ready, we ought to be ready to give an answer. And notice how you ought to answer. How you ought to answer. Notice someone will ask you. Someone asks you a question. Someone sees your walk. Someone sees what's going on and they ask, what's going on? What is the hope that is in you? This is probably akin to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Well, it's very similar here. That your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Notice it's when you're asked. When I think about apologists and apologetics and evangelism, is it ever that way? It kind of uh, causes us to stop and ponder and think about evangelism a little bit more, doesn't it? When you are 
asked. When someone, when you walk in wisdom and you speak with grace and someone asks you why, or in first Peter, when you suffer and do not grumble or complain and someone asks you why it's because of Christ, that is the platform. We don't always have to be obnoxious sometimes or jerks for Jesus. I'm not questioning hearts per se. Doesn't mean we always, it means we don't always need to have an agenda with people. Because we can just talk to people like regular people. And as we speak with them and talk to them and converse with them, and the hope is they would maybe they would ask as they see our lives and see how we're living, we can say, Christ died for me. Christ saved me. Christ worked in me. You see, our lives are not the gospel, but our lives can be a platform to share the gospel as we live in a manner consistent with God's word. But it's very interesting in the Bible when it comes to how we, all of us, can engage in evangelism, it is be ready to give an answer when you are asked, that you know how you ought to answer each one. And so I think what we see here is that we definitely need wisdom for this message-centered evangelism. First, we have to ask that God would help us in our lives, that our lives would be honoring to him, that our lives would be considerate of others, Again, the most important thing is not evangelism, but honoring God. We've been redeemed, saved. We are the new creation in the new creation church where our sins are forgiven. We must seek the things that are above. And brethren, when we fail in that, uh, that we must remember there is forgiveness and mercy in Christ. When we walk foolishly, when we speak angrily, there is mercy and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give us wisdom. May God give us grace. May God give us the ability to discern in moments what to do and how to speak. But one thing we can all do is put to death the old members. Put off these. Put on uh, uh, the tender mercies, kindness, humility, etc. Because we have put off and put on in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we must live a God-honoring life. But then also, we can have a ready reason for our faith. Again, not everybody has to have a PhD in theology. Not everybody is going to be called to the ministry. But all can do what we see in verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom and let your speech always be uh, with grace, seasoned with salt. We can all do this, dear brethren. You don't have to feel like less of a Christian if you don't pass out tracts or share the gospel with everybody you meet on the street, but you just must be ready. Certainly we ought to grow in understanding of truth, but this also doesn't mean you have to articulate the detailed intricacies of the hypostatic union to everyone, right? You don't have to unpack the mysteries of the Trinity for everyone you speak to. Be ready to give an answer. Why do you walk this way? Why are your children like that? Why this, that, or the other? Well, my children, you haven't seen my children when they're at home, but God saved my soul. And he says, this is how we're supposed to raise our, our little ones. And we need much grace and mercy. Well, why do you talk that way? You know, everybody else is grumbling and whining and complaining. Well, well, God helps me again. You probably should see me at home when I grumble to my wife about how life, life goes, but God's helping me today. And God has saved my soul. You just have to say, I'm a wretch and Christ saved me. Here's what he did for sinners. That is being ready to give an answer for the hope that is with you, uh, 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 hope within you that comes from God. That's what we do want sinners to be saved, dear brethren. But notice how Paul, and if you call him the scriptures as well, this does seem to be the emphasis. The gospel office-centered advancement of the church. And as I've said so often, I do believe missions is the church, church, church going forth. The church is being planted. Church is spread to the ends of the earth. That is what I believe missions is. And I do desire and hope if we plant churches in other parts of the world, in this part of the world, that we would see mission, that we would see missions unfolding. It is calling and vetting men to send forth to preach the word and plant churches. We have a great desire for that. But one thing, uh, things that we can all do is pray that that would happen, walk in wisdom, and let our speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. This is what God has called us to do as redeemed saints, as the new creation saints in him. Now, if you're an unbeliever here today, 
what is happening now is evangelism. You are a wretch and you need salvation. You are a wretch and you are a great sinner, but there is a great Christ who died for sinners. If you believe upon him, if you look to him, you shall be saved. I pray that God would open your heart. I pray that God would open your eyes. I pray that he give you eyes to see and ears to hear. But the Bible says, everyone who believes on the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. This is the good news that Christ came into the world sinners to save. We pray that it would advance through the church, and we pray that we would all be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for what your word says concerning the advancement of your kingdom. And thank you that it does advance through the means that you have set forth. Thank you for the preaching of the word. Thank you for faithful men who preach the word. And we do ask that you would raise up men who are faithful, that would proclaim Christ and him crucified, that would be willing to plant churches, that there would be great salvation, uh, uh, that you would call forth your elect out of darkness into marvelous light. We pray for this. We pray that our prayers would not be cold and dead, but our prayers would be earnest uh, and watchful and thank uh, and with thanksgiving. We pray that you'd help us in this, for we are weak, we are feeble, we need your help in this. Uh, and we do pray that your gospel would advance to the ends of the earth and that that gospel would be clear. We also pray that your people would walk in wisdom, that we would uh, be watchful against sin, that we would do what is right in your sight always, that we would redeem the time, that we'd buy the time that you've given to excuse me, that you've given to us, that it would be a fruitful time for us, that we would bear fruit becoming of Christ as we are redeemed and united in him. And we do pray that we would have walked circumspectly in the world in which we live and help us to be on guard, help us to be watchful against the world, the flesh and the devil. Thank you that we have Christ as we've received him. So may we walk in him. And we also pray as well that our words would be seasoned with grace. Help us know how we ought to answer each one. Help us to know and, and, and adjust accordingly to who we are speaking to. But may we always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Christ who's died for us, Christ who saved us. We are great sinners and we have a great savior. May we share him with others as the opportunities arise and help us to have wisdom in how we do this. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you save.